0: Welcome to the Bent Biblios Podcast. I'm Tegan.
1: And I'm Ashley. We are very excited for our guest today, Jilly McMillan. We chat all about her novel, The Nanny, and more.
0: We are here today with Jilly McMillan, the international best-selling author of six novels, including The Nanny, The Perfect Girl, and To Tell You the Truth. Jilly's novel, What She Knew, was an Edgar Award nominee, as well as an International Thriller Writers Award finalist. She is a former art historian and a photographer. Today we will be talking about Jilly's book, The Nanny.
1: Jilly, welcome. We're so excited to have you here
2: with us today. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be on the podcast.
0: Before we start talking about your novel, could you share with us some of your early memories of books and what led you to writing?
2: Most of my childhood memories center around reading. Um, My earliest memories, I had a... My parents had quite a sort, of, a sort of medium-sized house. And right in the middle of it, I had this tiny, tiny bedroom, not much bigger than a single bed, but it had a big window. And I remember lying in that bed with a book. I can see the silhouette of the book and the big window behind it. And, and it had a big cedar tree in the garden. And that's kind of imprinted a childhood memory. And it's books like Black D, uh, White Fang. The, those are the first books I cried at. And I think that's why I remember them so strongly. They moved me so much. And, and you know, once you've been so moved by it, it's an addiction for life reading, or, or it certainly was for me.
0: Yeah, my dad um, always had books everywhere, just shelves in every room with a bunch of different classics. And so I have those kind of memories, too, where it's just like I can't remember a time where I didn't have books in my life. <laughs>
2: I think if you have a house full of books as a child, it's an an absolute gift. My mom was an English teacher, so we had a thing.
1: The bookstore was a weekly thing. My mom would sleep in and my dad would take me to the bookstore and the donut shop. And that was just, that was the (laughs) highlight of my week.
2: That sounds like heaven.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It definitely is for us, right? For any of our listeners who have not yet read The Nanny, could you tell us a little bit about your
2: novel? Well, The Nanny is... uh, a story of a family, a sort of English aristocratic family. It mostly concerns a woman called Jo, who's in her 30s. She has a daughter of her own, and her mother is a woman called Lady Virginia Holt. Now, Jo and her mother are estranged at the beginning of the book. Um, Jo has fled this life of kind of privilege. She's moved to the other side of the world. Um, But her life falls apart, her life in the US falls apart, and she's forced to move back home to England, back into the family mansion. And the thing that really has come between her and her mother is something that happened. She was seven years old, her beloved nanny disappeared one night out of the blue, and nobody would give her a proper explanation as to why. So she's a mother herself, and she's lost everything she built. And she's living back in the family home, which is called Lake Hall. And then one day there's a knock on the door and it's a woman who claims to be Hannah, the missing nanny, who sets the cat amongst the pigeons for all the characters. And I came up with the idea with my agent um, because we were talking about how so many thrillers center on people who go missing, right? I mean, I've done it myself, my debut she knew A Missing Child. And we thought, what if you flip that? What would that do? And so that was where the whole idea came came from. And we we couldn't use a family member because a simple DNA test would sort that out and the book would only be 20 pages long. But we thought, well... <laughs> what if it's a nanny you know because they have such an intimate relationship with a family don't they so yeah that, that was where it all came from
1: I've read your books for a very long time and I've gotten a few of my friends hooked on your work actually I love the atmospheric writing the tension-filled stories and the realistic characters before we dive into discussing the nanny can you tell us a bit about how you come up with your ideas on what your writing process is like
2: so ideas come from all kinds of different places for me um for my debut, when I was thinking, oh, can I write a book? I don't know if I can write a book. Um, I thought, well, maybe it's best if you write about your own greatest fear. So for that one, I thought, well, that would be if my child went missing and I didn't know where they were. And I had, I've got three children and my youngest at the time was eight, eight years old. So that came from there. The Perfect Girl, uh, which is about a teenage girl. And um, that came from a conversation I had with a friend who's a criminal solicitor and he told me about a teenager who'd been involved in a terrible car accident when she was 17 and she'd ended up in jail it was her fault it was considered her fault and she was a brilliant young woman really supportive family but even so she never got back on her feet afterwards she just didn't And that really stayed with me. So that one was an idea that I couldn't let go of. So sometimes books come from something that you just keep thinking about. And sometimes it comes from a character, the nanny. I was thinking a lot about Lady Virginia and what it'd be like to write a really kind of um, Downton Abbey, upper-class character. I thought that would be fun um yeah it's so excuse me it's lots of different places but I tend to start with a a character who's really strong in my head or an idea that I think is really strong and then I will dive in at the beginning and figure the rest out as I go along
1: I love Lady Virginia (laughs) she's my favorite I really she was just feisty and fun and I just loved her
2: (laughs) She was a lot of fun to write, I have to say. She really was. I could have spent more time with her. I sort of wonder if I was going to go out to dinner with one of my characters, I think she'd be the one I'd choose just for entertainment.
1: Right, probably, yeah. The writing in this novel is very atmospheric. Lake Hall comes right off the page and you can almost feel the gravel crunching and the water lapping at your feet. Is Lake Hall inspired by a real property and how important is setting and landscape in this story in particular and in your books in general?
2: Um, I'm a big uh, lover of really setting a scene. I think it's a really important element of of a lot of fiction, but crime fiction in particular. I I love settings. I love all the Agatha Christie's. I love in Rankin, the Edinburgh settings there. Um, So I really like to try to bring that to my books. Many of them are set in Bristol, where I live, which is a city here in the UK. Um, And this was the first one I took out of Bristol into the countryside because I really wanted to bring that aristocratic life into a kind of just make it as three dimensional as I could. And I think the property is so key the setting the landowning is so key to families like that and their sort of estimation of themselves and their standing in society that it was really important to me to try and bring all that out plus the history you know the hundreds of years of history and you go in a house like that you're like someone was probably murdered here right at some (laughs) point you know I mean the odds are high so there's all that creepiness going on in the architecture and and all the, the years of sort of things that have happened there and I did go to look around a house. The, the, the book is actually set near where I used to live in, in Wiltshire um, so I know that landscape very very well. We, we lived there for about six years but I went to look at a house um, a bit nearer to Bristol where I live now called Great Chalfield Manor and it's gorgeous medieval uh, manor house and it has a, a much smaller lake than the one in my novel and it's really beautiful and they, all these strange topiary shapes in the garden so it's a little bit creepy too and it's um, it's used in Woolford Bulthor- I don't know if you've seen the Wolf Hall series based on the book, but they filmed a lot of scenes there. So so that was where I went to kind of touch the stone and, you know, really get a feel for those places.
0: Yeah, it did make me kind of think of like, did you ever read Northanger Abbey by Austin? And, yeah, and kind of the idea of like, there has to be skeletons in the closet somewhere yeah. here. Your imagination yeah. just goes wild about the people who would have also walked the floors.
2: (laughs) It was really fun to tap into that gothic kind of thing, which I hadn't ever done before in a novel.
0: So Lake Hall is more than just a setting. It really sets the stage for exploring upper versus lower class issues, as we see how other characters judge Joe and Virginia through where and how they live. Do you think Virginia, who is a relic of old English aristocracy, is really so different from the rest of the characters? Detective Andy judges her so harshly. What knowledge do you hope readers take away from your exploration of these class differences?
2: I think I wanted to show how much they impact on people's lives and and people's interactions and how, I mean, speaking for myself, I think... You know you carry certain prejudices um you know you you you're aware of other people's privileges, and even if you try very very hard to ignore those, it's not always possible and I think particularly in this country where so much privilege is uh, inherited and passed on through property it's the it's really the property that brings the power because you become an employer and you have such a big effect on the surrounding community. And I, and I hope that comes across in The Nanny. It's not just Virginia in her house, it's the power that house has, and the fact that so many people who live near it are affected by what happens there. Um, and Detective Andy, um, he comes from Swindon, which is where I actually grew up. Um, so it was really fun to bring a good kind of Swindon element into it because Swindon's a real working class town. And you, know, you don't approve of people who are sitting on Huge amounts of wealth and privilege through birthright when you work really, really hard for a living. And so I wanted to show that contrast. And I think it's interesting the way it plays into the police investigation um, because I guess these things happen you know we all bring our our prejudices whichever way those prejudices are directed it's I mean it's something that's very very hard to avoid no matter how strongly we can fight it around around class and other things yeah so I guess I wanted to just make people think about it.
1: Throughout reading this story I felt many things dread tension frustration at and on behalf of some of the characters, but also a familiarity and a love for them. The book is so hard to put down. What emotions did you hope to evoke from readers?
2: I, I think around Jo. I I was really frustrated as I read her character because she makes a lot of choices that are super, super annoying. And as a reader and a writer, I, I'm hoping you kind of go don't or stop or even look behind you type of sort of pantomime cry. Um, But what I wanted to share with that is that how we can, we can get really tunnel visioned, you know, we can, can, or I can, I know that things that happen in your past can really make you, you know, pursue things with a doggedness that's not necessarily a good idea. So I wanted to show that with Joe um, and I wanted to look at the dynamics of family, um, the three generations That was really important to me. I think how, you know, different relationships exist between grandmothers and their daughters and their granddaughters and that kind of thing. I love Joe,
1: And from the beginning you're rooting for, but sometimes you're just like, girl, I just want to shake you. (laughs) (laughs) I also enjoyed the multiple perspectives that were given in this novel. It allows you to get a deeper look into each of their motivations and themselves as a character. Why did you choose to write the book in
2: this way? I think you've just nailed it right there. I I wanted to get in everybody's head, especially because I was dealing with characters from different classes. So, you know, we may, I I personally would perhaps bring a bit of skepticism to Virginia's character because of who she is um, and how kind of grand she is. But I wanted people to get in her head as well, to see that she's actually real in there and her motivations are real. And she's just like the rest of us, really. And I love the idea, you know, sometimes in a film when a cocktail party or is being filmed, the camera moves around the room and homes in on different conversations. And you learn so much about the room and the tone. And that's what it always feels like to me to write in different perspectives. I like the book to come at a story, different places. And I also think you can have some fun with it because you can reveal something through one character that another character maybe doesn't know yet. So it's a great way to ratchet up tension.
0: Alexander is one of the characters where we don't know their perspective and motivations. When you were constructing his character, what did you decide motivated him? If Virginia wasn't so protective of Joe and keeping the estate intact for her, do you think she would have stuck with him despite his flaws and
2: betrayals? I think the answer... To that last part of your question, which would Virginia have stuck to him? Is is quite probably yes, because I think she fell in love with him. She really fell, fell for that guy. I think he's motivated by weakness in a way. I think he's born into this life. He hasn't really questioned it because it's a really nice life. He's you know the eldest son. He's going to inherit this big estate and everything that comes with that. He's had a bit of a playboy lifestyle as a younger man. There's still some money. Um, So I don't think he's questioned questioned much, especially not after he meets Virginia and it's all, you know, an absolute romance and she's the woman of his dreams and all of that. Um, And then, of course, he gets himself into debt. And at that point, I think he's motivated by trying to maintain the facade of this life, keep the family name up keep the estate intact because you don't want to be the one out of generations and generations of halts who lost everything and he's in real danger of that so I think his motivations change but I'm not sure how strong he is you know in himself
0: yeah it was really interesting to watch that kind of how everyone viewed him as kind of the the strong one but really it's behind the scenes Virginia's holding everything together
2: totally it's all her
0: Yeah. You often explore the deep and dark psyche of your characters. Are there any authors or films you take inspiration from when writing on the darker aspects of personality and humanity?
2: Um, I think, I mean, I watch an awful lot of true crime. Uh, which inspires me a lot. You know, any podcast, that is podcasts as well. I'm a huge fan of true crime podcasts. So all of that, real life cases are fantastically inspiring. There's a great series here in the UK called 24 Hours in Police Custody, where you follow someone from an arrest through the police interview process and you get a really close look at the motivations of criminals. So there's that kind of thing. Movies I watch all the time. Absolutely, they all inspire me. I think the author who inspired me the most on looking at dark side of people is probably Gillian Flynn in Gone Girl. I mean, that's such a great book. Um, You know, the sort of bad girl thing, you know, Amazing Amy, who's just so horrible. Um, I think she really did that so well. And it, it just, I read it at a time when I was just starting to think about writing a thriller. So it had a really strong impact on me. I still think about that character a lot.
1: I remember reading Gone Girl when it first came out and I loved it. I wanted to throw it at the end too but it was one of the ones that really got me into thriller reading um before that I was more historical fiction and general fiction but yeah that book really got me got me hooked on the thriller genre and I have not looked back since
2: (laughs) it definitely made that one and no time for goodbye the Linwood Barclay book that was the other the one that got me into thrillers you remember that when a teenage girl wakes up in the morning and her family have disappeared i've never like, read linwood barclay uh, well that novel was the other one that really sparked my interest in trying to write thrillers because it's a it's got a domestic setting and it's just so compelling to think of this young girl she wakes up with a bit of a hangover goes downstairs expecting her family to be mad at her and they're just not there and the mystery uh, goes on from there. It's really good I think I'm going to have to pick that one up. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I'm I'm itching to go grab my Goodreads app on my phone and add it before I forget the title.
2: (laughs) I'll send it to you. Okay, perfect.
1: (laughs) One of the many things I love about your books is the fact that the characters are so real and relatable. You can see aspects of yourself in almost every character, good or bad. Uh, How do you develop your character ideas and then flesh them
2: out into who they become in the book? Um, I think the characters often, if if I'm lucky, a character just lands fairly fully formed. I mean, there's probably some process in my head that made it land, but I'm not very aware of it at the beginning of a book. And it's really writing the first draft that brings a character to life. It's it's often I'll get to the end of the first draft and, and then I'll be saying, oh, okay, now I see what I'm writing now I've got it, now I see where that character's going, and I'll go back and do a a really big rewrite to make, to strengthen them, and to bring out the bits that are interesting about them, and I love writing about conflicts within people, because I think many people have conflicts, we all have good, many of us have bad as well, you know, there's all of that all the time, so I really like to do that, I like to try to surprise the reader, and subvert their expectations sometimes around certain characters, and it fascinates me, all the shades of gray, you know,
0: that are in people. Yeah, like to go back to what you were saying earlier, like I like watching true crime as well for that reason, because you it's interesting to see what motivates people and like the conflicts in their lives, because usually the day to day people don't share that with you. They're not going to say, hey, by the way, I'm <laughs> thinking about all this stuff and going back
2: and forth. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I think one of the ones that's fascinated me most recently was a uh, one about a woman who just was a serial liar. She just lied about absolutely everything to everybody. And and I couldn't get over it because, I'm, you know, I just couldn't get over how you can live your life like that. And it was fascinating to watch that unravel in an interview process over a couple of days, which is what the show gave you. So I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah, I, if anything, I'm more of like, Pathologically honest, where my husband's like, Why are you telling something? Stop.
1: You'd be no good in a thriller. Yeah. <laughs> I <know>. like, <laughs> Stop talking, Tegan. I don't know, though, because she's got a side. She would either be done in the first few pages or she would have been the one that did it all.
0: That's the thing about watching a lot of true crime. You get a lot of ideas. You do. <laughs> They say authors write what they know. I think that's true for a starting point, but eventually it's fun to explore the unknown. There are certainly things about your characters that reflect some parts of your life experience, such as art history. Do these shared experiences make you feel more connected to your characters? And did you relate or connect to one character more than the others?
2: Uh, I think I... I related to Jo in some ways because she's a mother and that's a big deal in the story and and it's a big deal in my life as well. Uh, My children are you know almost all adults now but it's still just a huge part of my life so uh, Jo did a lot of stuff that I thought was wrong but I still related to her. Um, The art history stuff it's really it's really nice to use things that you've done previously in your life in books. I've had one character be a photographer and what she knew and that was nice and the art history stuff is fun because it fit the story. It's quite glamorous. You know, it's a side of life, which can be fun in London, you know, parties, and there's a lot of money involved. There's a quite a glamorous set around that kind of thing. I mean, not if you're an art history student like me, but the, you know, once you get into the sort of gallery world and the, the world of auctioneers and, you know, to lesser extent museums, it, it's pretty exciting. Um, and so I thought that was a really nice fit for Virginia and the Holt family because they have this art collection as well. So, yeah, it seemed to see. I like it when something I know about dovetails was something I'm looking to put into a book.
0: To revisit your background in art history, how did this influence your exploration of art and forgeries in the book? Is this a common issue in the art world or something you dealt with during your time in this profession?
2: It's nothing I dealt with knowingly. <laughs> <laughs> um, although I did used to work for a major gallery and, and sometimes they get caught up in this stuff. Um, it's certainly a, a big theme because the art world is quite unique in that the valuation of something can vary from, say, £3,000 to £3 million, depending on who did it. And you obviously have technology to help you um, date canvases and paint and you know, look under paintings, see what's beneath and all sorts. But after that, you're just relying on the word of experts. So this can be one or two people, you know, sometimes a committee, and they have all of that power in their hands to say yay or nay, you know, in terms of value. So it's ripe for, for people to take advantage of that. And there've been some really famous forgers. I got deep into research because I was fascinated by this and you wouldn't believe what some forgers have done, how many works they've slipped into the market. Um, yeah, I had to stop myself researching then because the novel would never have got written. But <laughs> Look it up if you're interested, it's amazing. It's amazing what what stories are out there.
1: It did make me very interested in
2: the art world.
1: I am going to have to do some reading up on it because um, I just had no idea that art forgery and things on that level was a thing. So now I'm just kind of hooked.
2: (laughs) If I can find the link, there's a brilliant documentary about one particular forger. If I can find the link, I'll send it to you. It's fascinating. That'd be great.
1: The Nanny really explores the relationship between mother and daughter, as well as mother figures. Uh, Virginia and Joe, Joe and Ruby, Joe and Hannah, and just how complex those relationships can be. There's also often the fear expressed of becoming like your mother. What made you want to dive into those familial dynamics?
2: I, I'm interested in them, very interested in them, the way dynamics change over generations and the different links we can have. I also like to write about things that are, that are universal. And we are all part of family of some sort, you know, whether those relationships are just as in the book with our actual grandmothers and mothers and daughters, or whether they're with friends or aunties or godmothers, or, you know, we're all part of a web of relationships and it all, you know, how we relate to one affects another and our behavior can change with different people, depending on our memories and our connections. And and of course, in the nanny, There's manipulation going on. One character is really manipulating how another feels about her mother. Um, And I just wanted to dive into that because I think many, you know, most people should be able to relate to it. And and I I like that. I like to do that in, in thrillers where I can.
0: Yeah, it really pulled on my heartstrings, like how the idea of motherhood for Virginia, it never... Never happen, and it's just like, oh man, that's when I wanted to shake Joe because I'm going, like, she's she's reaching out
2: to you. <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> come on. Dear, yeah, and Joe can't see it because she's too damaged by what happened. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I think this can happen. I think we can get so strongly affected by things we can't see when other people may be reaching out to us. It's one of those sadnesses that can happen in life.
0: So. I found it really interesting that while Virginia does not want Joe to become like her, she seems to relish seeing similarities between herself and Ruby. Why is this, do you think?
2: I think it's a breath of fresh air for Virginia. It's It kind of comes off what you were just saying. She's finally connecting with a child with her granddaughter when she was so unable to connect with her daughter so it's like you know breathing oxygen after being starved of it for for a long time for virginia it delights her absolutely delights her and she's allowed to express she she's not joe doesn't love her expressing it but for her it's just the it's like being given a gift you never thought you were going to get
0: I love their relationship, I think it's really great. Identity is such a constructed and fragile thing. We see that explored in different ways by each character in the novel. For Virginia, the mask of Lady Holt is something she puts on that she can only take off around a select few. The most deeply disturbing example is the constructed and false identity of Hannah. Was Hannah inspired by any real or fictional person? When you were creating her character, did you have a backstory not mentioned in the book that made her how she is?
2: She wasn't inspired by anybody real or fictional. I think I just had a strong idea of her. I suppose maybe someone a bit old fashioned that you might find in a Dickens novel or something. I haven't really thought about that before, it's just come into my head. I think she's motivated mostly by ambition. I think she didn't have much growing up. I think I touch on that very, very lightly in the book, but she had a tough old upbringing, lots of siblings. You know very little money, and I think she went to work for another family and and saw that you know it could be different. and I think it, she's just really ambitious. She wants stuff, she wants prestige, she wants money, and she will stop at nothing to get it.
1: Memories are slippery things and the mind is so fascinating. We see throughout the book just how unreliable memory can be at times. What led you to explore the themes of memory and influence?
2: I think it's fascinating. Memory is fascinating. I have a really, really poor memory. And so I often can't remember something and my husband will be able to describe it in detail. And it often occurs to me, what if he's making it up? You know, what if that's not true? He's not that sort of person, but he could. Um, And I think many of us don't remember correctly. I mean, there's all these famous stories about, you know, you have 10 witnesses to a crime and they all describe something different. And that just absolutely fascinates me. Um, And I think a lot of us rely on photographs or old film for memories. And I think we do that perhaps more than we sometimes realize. So this thing that we think is such a solid resource, I'm not sure it is. I think it's quite fluid for, for many of us. And I wanted to really play on that in the book.
0: Yeah, like I think often now people rely on everyone having like dash cams or their cell phone, because when you just have someone being like, well, I saw a car, it could have been white, it could have been blue, and you go, no one has a clue, that's not helpful at all. And I don't have a good memory either. Although sometimes I can remember things where I go, why did I remember that? But I couldn't tell you like what I'm supposed to do or yeah. why I walked into the room. Like I walk into a room, and go, I was gonna ask you something, but I don't know.
2: <laughs> you're not alone. I'm the same.
0: <laughs> we are often influenced by the everyday around us. Do you read or avoid reading thrillers while you're writing one?
2: So I tend to have a, a total thriller binge right before I start a new one. So I'm I'm between books right now. I'm doing my copy edits and things, but I'm about to start the new one. And so I'm sort of binging thrillers, just to almost, almost like a warm up to get into that pace and that sort of style. Um, but then that will tail off as I start writing and I tend to turn toward other genres um, just because I want to keep my thriller story fresh But also, I think it's a really, really good idea to read broadly, because it just makes me a better writer. I think it helps my craft. So yeah, I sort of binge them, and then I reject them, and then I come back to them. But I'm always reading, no matter what it is, I'll be reading constantly throughout a book
1: willful ignorance and past experiences can really affect how we see situations and how we act on them. How many of Joe's decisions and actions do you think are based on willful ignorance and how many are fueled by past experience?
2: I think some of the most important decisions she makes early on are very informed by past experience, um, the manipulation that happened to her. But I think as things progress, it's willful ignorance Joe really wants to believe in a fairy tale ending and Hannah turning up at the door after all these years looks like a fairy tale ending and so I think that's where willful ignorance starts to come into play for her so yeah it's a funny old mixture
0: since we were just talking about decisions, I wanted to ask how far do you think you would go to protect your family? Would you make the same decisions, do you think, as Virginia and Joe?
2: Oof. Um, <laughs> well, you know, this is the joy of thrillers, isn't it? This is why I enjoy reading them, because they confront you with these how far, how far would you go questions? And the answer is, I don't know, because I've never been in a situation where my family is threatened to to such a degree. But I think that's why I love them because they make you think, would I have that in me? Would I, if my child was in danger, would I, you know, do something extreme to protect them? Answer is, I don't know. And I hope I never have to find out. (laughs) Same. Keith and
1: I were actually having a conversation about that a few days ago, because we were reading something, it was an article or something. And uh, I said, when I was younger, I was like, no, I would do that. What are they doing? That's not the decision I would make. And I said, now, as I get a bit older, and as I, you know, I've read all my life, but as I'm reading more varied things and learning, I'm like, you know what, I don't know. Like, I would love to say I would do the morally right thing, or I would do this certain thing. But put in a situation, I'm just like, I don't, I don't know anymore what, yeah. what I would do because I'm learning that people can be capable of a lot of things they don't necessarily know. So it is, it's just so fascinating. And that's why I love thrillers too. Cause you do, you think you're like, what I could not like, could I do that? So yeah, yeah I, I love that. Grief is another theme explored throughout the book. Many forms, actually the death of a parent, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a life that you become accustomed to or thought that you were going to have. I feel like it was written about in such a way that anyone who has experienced loss, which is, I think everybody can really relate to. Did you learn anything new or surprising about grief through writing this story?
2: I think I learned it's something we've, we've touched on earlier, really around your question with Joe. I think I learned that it can inform a lot of decisions. It can make you afraid of seeing another bad outcome on the horizon it can make you cling to a fairy tale it can make you behave in strange and sad ways and it can make you turn a you know turn away from an offer of help because you you don't recognize it or you feel angry about it um I think it distorts I think it's a difficult difficult thing and it can come back to us in different ways at different stages of our life that's the other thing grief it's hard to get rid of grief
0: yeah, like that whole um, cliched saying, like time is a great healer. I think you just kind of learn to live with it. And and yeah, it does impact how you decide to do things. And there's various forms, as Ashley said, of loss. So like you, when you're growing up, you kind of have to realize that your parent is a person too. Mm-hmm. And that's in itself kind of a loss when you're like, oh, you have this vision like she has of like who her parents are, like her dad is just this perfect man. And it's like, no, he's he's been held up by Virginia. <laughs> he's not perfect. So it's kind of, it's really interesting to explore the different decisions we make, like you said, because of what's happened to us. I often try to figure out the mystery before the reveal. I guess a few times throughout as I started to put some pieces together, Are there any books where you couldn't solve the mystery or that genuinely shocked you as well?
2: Uh, I'm going to be a little bit boring and repeat Gongal because the twist in the middle of that really did shock me. But because I'm such a, I'm always paying really close attention to the plot. They don't, thrillers nowadays don't often surprise me because I'm often reading as a writer which is one of the sadnesses about becoming a writer. You don't read as a reader anymore, and I miss that. Um, I pay too much attention to the mechanics now, which I never used to do. Um, So they don't often surprise me. I'm sure there have been others that have, but they can't spring to mind, but Gonga was a a wallop. I was like, whoa, yeah, absolutely fair play. Fooled me there.
1: The first time I read this book, I read it in the physical copy. The second time around, I listened to the audio book on Audible. The narration was fantastic. Like the different narrators for each character. It just really brought the story to life even more. What is the process of turning one of your books into an audio book? Do you get to pick the narrators or do
2: you like, how does that work? Uh, I will normally be sent. I mean, I think authors have varying degrees of involvement in this process. I mean, I know some authors read their own stories. Um, For me, I will be sent audio samples of uh, suggestions for actors or actresses that could portray each character. And it's very, very exciting when they cast more than one person because you think oh wow this is going to be great because often they just cast one person and they'll read the whole book so I was super excited when I got the email about the nanny and I will listen to all the samples and I will feedback my preference you can't always have your preference because they might not be available but I think in the nanny we, we got everybody we wanted and so um, that was wonderful I can't listen to it because I can't listen to my own work <laughs> so yeah. I will not read my own work so as a slight sadness there one day I'm gonna to have to make myself because I keep hearing how good the audiobook is for the nanny
1: yeah I do highly recommend it to anyone who even if you've already read the nanny it was like reading it for the first time again with the voice actors my husband was on his own for a couple of days making dinner I'm like no I'm listening you're okay <laughs> I just want
2: it's. they did such a good job I'm, I must listen
1: to it, yeah. Yeah, I have a hard
0: time listening back anything that has my voice recorded, so I can understand why. Like you'd be like, oh, no, yeah. I don't. <laughs> i don't know how actors do it like for actors to watch because then you're hearing yourself and seeing yourself i don't know how they do it my
2: son is on tv do you do you know the show call the midwife (gasps) i love call the midwife my son is timothy turner the doctor's son oh my gosh (laughs) he can't he can't watch it he cannot watch himself how so yeah
1: (laughs) those books and that show is her absolute favorite I haven't <laughs> read the books within the show but she keeps trying to get me to read and watch it and it is her favorite like hands down favorite that's, yeah. I think you
0: just made her day. That's name. funny. <laughs> I, I'm like, oh, I got to go back. And because I know my aunt also was just re-watching the, the series. So I'll have to mention that to my
2: aunt. Oh, please <laughs> <too>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We spent, Max has been in it since he was 11. He's 21 now. Um, So mm-hmm. we spent, I don't go with him to set anymore, but I spent years on set with him um, as his chaperone. Oh, um, and he was supposed to be on it for one day. And it just grew into yeah
0: thing in yeah i just found the stories fascinating um we did a interview with audrey blake which is the two women who partnered to write the book and it deals with women and in, in the victorian times and how they weren't allowed to practice medicine and so we i brought up call the midwife because i saw like some parallels with the setting and i said i read I read it while I was pregnant, actually. Oh, wow, did you have <laughs> <laughs> But I was like, you know what, this is good. Medicines come a long way, so it's kind of comforting. That
2: is true. <laughs> it's a good show, and I think it deals with the medical stuff really, really well. I, I cry in almost every episode if I watch it. Oh, yeah. It. Have yeah. you read
0: the books as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they're really cool. Because we got the
2: scripts, which is exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah. that would be. All right. Well, I know what I'll be watching later. (laughs) Um, To start talking about psychological thrillers, what do you love about writing them and what are some of the challenges as well?
2: Uh, I think what I love is something we touched on earlier is this thing of know, making people question themselves and question what they might be capable of that's definitely one thing I love the escapism I love the mystery solving I love the crime genre in general you know I like the detectives and I like the settings that we also talked about earlier that kind of thing it's just great you know they turn pages and when you're in a certain mood you want to like really get into a book and read it carefully but a lot of the time I just want a book that's just going to take me out and just you know I just can't put down and crime fiction often does that for me um so yeah I absolutely love it it's great it's great fun the challenge I think is keeping ahead of the reader because I have you know I'm constantly aware that readers are probably smarter than I am and ahead of the game on the plot so that is a constant concern like is this gonna are they gonna guess the twist are they gonna figure out what I'm going to do with this character. So it's always like, can I keep pages turning? Can I keep ahead of them on on what's happening? So those are the, the main the main challenges to writing in this genre.
1: Speaking of writing one, you have a new book coming out next year, The Long Weekend. Are you able to tell us anything
2: about it? I can't tell you anything about it just yet, apart from um, I, I think I, I think it's my best one. I think it is. I don't often say that. I usually don't like my books when I finish them. But this one was particularly intense because it was my pandemic book. It's got a really exciting setup. It was really immersive to write more so than some of the others. So I don't know, readers will readers will make up their own minds. But for me, it's one that I feel really attached. I'm very excited to get it out there. It'll be out, I think, uh, next spring. I'm so
1: excited. Your name is enough to sell me a book. You could write like, I don't know, a recipe and I'd be like, I have to have it. (laughs) It would be a
0: really suspenseful recipe. (laughs) (laughs)
2: It would be so my cooking. I'm very
0: excited to hear what it's about it would be I think really a challenge to write during a pandemic but sometimes challenges like can bring out
2: yeah I mean it's loosely it's a it's 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 called the long weekend um and it's based on three couples who have a weekend and I can't say much more just yet but it's I think it's my most suspenseful book so yeah it kicks Mm -hmm. off quickly and yeah it ramps up So we'll see. We'll see what people think of it. That's
1: exciting. You know what? Sometimes going into a thriller blind, like knowing next to nothing, is the best way to go in because you just don't know what to expect at at all. So that's exciting. All right. So we're going to move on to some fun questions now. So hopefully this won't be too
0: hard for you to pick. If you were trapped on an island and could only have one book with you, what would it be?
2: Well, I think there's probably lots of sensible answers to this, like books that would keep you going. But my favourite book is a slim novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez called Chronicle of a Death Foretold. You know, in the first line, you know, this guy's going to be murdered by the end of the day. And... I love it. It's so masterfully done and the suspense is so fantastic and the characters leap off the page. So it's a really short novel. I might regret my choice, but I'm taking that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was asked once, like, what musician? And I couldn't pick. I was like, well, I'm a mood listener and a mood reader. So I'm like, this is depending on the day (laughs) or the hour, it would be a different answer. (laughs) I so think you just kind of have to go with your gut. So, other question, do you put down a book that you aren't in love with or do you push through?
2: I used to always push through, but I have to read so much now um and some of it I have to read just to keep myself informed about what's happening in the market and stuff like that, that I will uh, put a book down now with a kind of slight tear in my heart, because I don't think you should. <laughs> but I but I do. <laughs> How about you guys? Do you do that? or no.
0: Um, I usually like, know pretty quickly, if I'm ready for a book. So sometimes I like, put it down but maybe just to f- make myself feel better, I go, I'll come back to you, <laughs> whether or not that's true or not. <laughs> maybe I'm just lying to myself.
1: <laughs> I always try to push through. And there's generally I don't usually get very many books that I don't want to finish.
2: If a book's not a good fit for you, and we'll have books that don't fit us. It's, you know, there's so many out there that that might be a better fit that yeah, yeah. I feel like you're wasting time but I, I get that impulse to push to the end I totally have that it does feel bad to put a book down
1: well yeah because you know how much work has gone into it. you know how long it's taken to do but yes I, I'm I usually push through, but I'm starting to get a little bit better of just being like okay I'm gonna pass this to someone else like you said who will appreciate it and enjoy it and I'll move really? on to something different too so what are
2: you currently reading right now I am reading the paper palace is that what it's called it's a currently the number one new york times bestseller i think by miranda cowley heller i think is the author or hella cowley i apologize if i've got that the wrong way around it's absolutely brilliant the writing is fantastic it's not a thriller but there are elements of suspense in it it's set in cape cod one summer and it's about a a kind of love triangle and marriage. Absolute gripping. Can't recommend it highly enough.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Absolute privilege. You can pick up a copy of The Danny wherever books are sold. You can find a list of Jilly's previous books and keep up with new projects on Jilly's website, www.jillymcmillan.com. We will have all the links in the show notes below.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Please leave a review or visit us on Instagram at Bent Biblio's
1: podcast and let us know. We have new episodes every Friday. We'll see you then.